This week on Dig Me Out, it's the Punk Rock Roundtable with special guests Eric Grubbs and Scott Colvin. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me as always, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 240, Jay. We've hit 240. What does that mean? What's the significance of 240? Uh, it's 420, but inverted. Oh, there you go. So there you go. I don't know what else. That's about so it. We're, so we're doing jam bands of the 90s. Yeah, we're doing. this is our jam band. We're going to talk some mo. We're going to talk some... <laughs> Uh, no, I think you'll be doing this. This will be a single. This will be a roundtable where you basically parrot all the voices. Yeah, that's basically it. <laughs> I won't good. be able to contribute to this conversation. Well, Jay, luckily you will be able to contribute to this conversation because we're talking about punk rock of the 1990s. Oh, thank God. Okay. Yes. Don't worry. We're going the actually the opposite direction. Instead of 25 minute long jams, we're talking about two minute long jams. Gotcha. To help us do so this week, we have a couple of guests. We have a, a returning guest who visited us uh, probably oof, over a year ago for the mm-hmm. Texas is a reason is the reason episode. Mr. Eric Grubbs from Dallas, Texas. Texas. Uh, Hi Eric, guys, how are you? Doing well. I'm looking forward to talking about punk rock for you guys with you guys. And we are as well. I got to give your 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 bona fides here. So you are currently blogging at themeparkexperience.blogspot.com. Mm-hmm. Yes, you that's are, my personal blog. That's your personal blog where you where you let the emotions fly. Mm-hmm. You have uh, uh, some writings that you have contributed to the Dallas Observer. Mm-hmm. You are the current host of the Do You Know Who You Are podcast, which I believe is a reference to. Texas is the reason. Absolutely. I couldn't think of a better name. <laughs> and uh, you have contributed some literary works in the past years. Most recently in 2014, the fiction release, When We Were the Kids, and then uh, a few years before that, the nonfiction book, which I very much enjoyed, Post, A Look at the Influence of Post-Hardcore 1985 to 2007. Mm-hmm. These are both available on the internets at Amazon and such places. And then you can find Eric at Eric underscore Grubbs on Twitter. And of course, Eric is the contributor. I didn't. I left this out when we were doing our pre-talk of the <laughs> Saint Anger proposal to the thirty-three and a third series. Uh, yep, yeah. that's me. Nice. That is. I I will go to bat for that record, <laughs> while so many people want to just how's, kick that dog. How's that proposal going? I I. I sent it in. It's in, Jay. Yeah, all, all proposals are in. Uh, there's 604 proposals, I believe, which is an increase of 200 over last uh, mm-hmm. submission period. And we should know by mid-September the top 100 that are going to be whittled down to like four or five. Mm-hmm. So Eric and I both have submissions in. We're both battling for the top four or five spots. Yeah. And uh, we'll see how the I, brackets I, come out. For, I have a backup plan in case they don't take my proposal. I'm gonna write an I'm gonna write another fictional book, something I've been wanting to do for the last couple of years, just haven't gotten around to doing it. Is so, it the story anyway. of a heavy metal band struggling with emotions and 
difficult, no. difficult uh, time period, making a record it's, that is unique, oh, unique snare mikings. <laughs> See, you are the guys I would write St. Anger for, all right? Uh, Absolutely. I want to read this book. I'm telling yeah, you, I, I yeah. want to read it. Yeah. I'm dying to read it. There's an entire chapter devoted to the snare drum on it. But seriously, uh, the um, no, no, seriously, there is a chapter yes. proposed. Uh, there but, has to um, be. But uh, I am planning on writing a book about pop culture writers that think they've got everything made, and then life throws them some huge curveballs, and how do they respond to that? So, oh, anyway. that's cool. And it's called Forever Got Shorter. Anyway, that's enough about me. <laughs> I'd like to propose a chapter on the guitar solos, and then the chapter is empty. <laughs> it's just a blank page. Oh. Uh, and then joining us from joining us from Annapolis, Maryland, first time guest, Mr. Scott Colvin. Scott, how are you? Good. How you doing? Great. You are the editor, yes. or one of the editors, I guess. Is there multiple editors? Um, just me right now. Okay, so you're the editor and a writer at CM Chat Live. Can you tell us about CM Chat Live? Sure. It's a uh, it's a country music website, uh, one of the bigger um, country sites on, online right now. Uh, we do interviews with country singers every Monday night on Twitter at 9 o'clock Eastern Time. Um, we're just branching out into some celebrity stuff with a sister site called Haystar. Uh, and those are for more like celebrity type people, actors, actresses, whatnot. And those are on Thursday nights at 9. So tell us then. Why am I talking about punk rock? Why are you talking about punk rock? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love punk rock. 90s punk rock, um, indie rock, um, favorites of mine. Um, About five years ago, I started a um, video blog called Your Forgotten Favorite, um, named after a Velocity Girls song. And uh, did that for a good five years until it ran its course and uh, got got hooked up with the uh, country uh, site. Excellent. Let's face it, there's a lot more... uh... If, if you're going to start a business, country would be the one to start the business. Right? <laughs> well, I wish I started it. Um, I, we have a great boss there, and uh, I was just grateful that she's given me this opportunity. Cool. Excellent. So we got a couple of uh, folks who chimed in on our Facebook page about this episode. I just want to mention some of the bands. I want to say uh, thanks to Frederick Aaron Morris, uh, Darren Bevington Leach, and Eric J. Peterson for all commenting. They mentioned some bands that we're going to possibly talk about, the Groovy Ghoulies, uh, the Fall, um, some of the Beastie Boys punk output, uh, and then some record labels like Fat Records and Epitat. Uh, I'm sure some of that stuff, and Lookout Records came up as well. I'm sure some of that's going to come up when we're when we're talking. So I want to take this from the, um, from the angle that Jay and I are completely ignorant that punk rock even existed in the 90s. And, oh, uh, boy. This will be a fun conversation. <laughs> right. <laughs> Because uh, you know we were we were listening to um, to uh, Soundgarden and uh, all that alternative rock head headbanging stuff. Sure, we knew that Dookie existed, but <laughs> there's so much there's so much more. I, I, I have to say, when I went back though and uh, started looking and doing research here, uh, there was a lot more that I was listening to that uh, I realized, I guess, especially oh. in the late '90s. So. Okay, so you were. I'll be able to contribute a little bit. Okay, good. So we don't have to take the completely ignorant approach. (laughs) I just see this as a way of educating you. I'm not thinking less of y'all. It's just a way to fill in the gaps when y'all were busy doing other things. I mean, that's that's the cool thing about (laughs) discussing 
music that when you were, you know, an active participant in music, there was the stuff that you just completely missed or just you didn't get it at the time. And so, I mean, this right. is, you know, frankly, this is why I like listening to y'all's podcast. So, well, that's that's much appreciated. And hopefully we're going to do the same uh, justice that we did some of the other uh, topics that we covered from the past. So one of the things I really wanted to cover was. You know, I really want to keep this 90s focused, but I want to talk about how punk rock as a as a genre and as a, a musical movement sort of evolved from the the sort of general understanding that in the in the 70s, you know, it, it was birthed in the 80s it was this split between, you know, I guess you'd say like the really the underground, the your Black Flags and your Minutemen and and those sorts of bands that were out there touring on their own dime and they didn't have the support of major labels. They didn't want the support of major labels. They were it was DIY, and then that exploding into the '90s with Lookout Records and and Green Day with Dookie and um, you know bands like Rancid and The Offspring and all these variants that would pop up throughout the decade, as Jay was mentioning. Can we talk a little bit about like why that happened? Because it really seems odd that, you know, the 90s were, at the beginning of it, to me, to my ear, you know, embracing a lot of what Jay and I just recently covered on the Mother Love Bone podcast, which was embracing sort of like that 70s against some of the harder rock combined with some punk, but not necessarily blatantly punk. Like, you can hear some, a little bit of punk in Nirvana, but it's in the early stuff. It's in the incesticide early songs and bleach but once they broke into the mainstream Nirvana, you know never mind doesn't have that same sort of punk edge so i just kind of want to go around and get your opinions on why punk rock evolved into this mainstream juggernaut you know dookie sold nine million copies in two years that's from 1993 to 1984 that's crazy those are crazy numbers they don't that doesn't exist anymore so yeah that's what i want to cover first why did punk explode in the 90s eric i'm gonna start with you okay explain it i'll give you my personal recollection of it because when i was in seventh grade uh that was the year that nirvana released Nevermind. by the time that green day released dookie i was a freshman in high school now those are only just a couple of years but as far as growth it was huge and in the in the terms of the the music scene, grunge was already starting to get played out by ninety three ninety four and major labels were keen that they should try to just really expand upon uh the punk attitude, not necessarily the punk sound, but just very much the punk attitude because throughout uh Kurt Cobain's life, he still had this very d i y punk attitude um all all the way to his untimely death and so for me by 1994 you know kurt was dead and things were in a real it was a real dark place and so you know in april of 94 i remember green day's longview video showing up on mtv on regular rotation just a couple months later and it was that same fuck you kind of attitude, but man, those songs were super catchy. And that essentially began to open a lot of doors for bands like The Offspring and and many, many others to the point where things got really interesting and 
suddenly the idea of being a full-on fast pop punk band to be on a major label, that was unheard of in the 80s and early 90s, but it happened then. And, and I really think it was more of the pop accessibility that connected with teenagers like myself. Interesting. Scott, thoughts? Well, I hate to echo what Eric just said, but I mean, I definitely I agree that Nirvana was the, um, the starting point, really. Um, I'll try to find a different way of uh, explaining it, but <laughs> um, there was a lot of stuff that they were doing. They, they introduced a lot of fans to punk rock um, that normally didn't hear punk rock. Right. And that wasn't just the Seattle bands. It was it, they were talking about bands, um, you know, like the Black Flags and, and you know, oh, you got to check out, you know, this band or this band or you know, Bikini Kill or all the Riot Girl bands. And I think that had a lot to do with it, um, really, much like you could say, you know, a couple of years later, once Green Day got big. All of a sudden, people are hearing about bands like No Effects and Bad Religion, even who were pretty known by that point. It was kind of just a, it was a gateway essentially. Um, okay, that's really. I mean, I, I I can't really explain why all of a sudden MTV went from the you know the Bushes and Silver Chairs to Green Day, and yeah, you know, I was seeing bands like Rancid and Civ, you know, shortly after that on on MTV and I was, I was shocked by that really because it just didn't make sense to what was currently popular time the Pearl Jam and whatnot the, the one thing that I thought of when I was listening to I was I was going on to Spotify and listening to like a lot of um, curated punk rock mixes from the 90s and the thing that I really caught my ear was how unpolitical a lot of it was whereas the 80s mm-hmm. was driven by like Reagan and the bomb and the stupid yuppies and there was like a very very strong social and political commentary in in 80s punk rock and it seemed like once the enemy of Reagan was gone and once Clinton was in office and once the wall was down and this threat of like global thermonuclear war was over with that bands like Green Day and Rancid and, you know, No Effects and whatever, they didn't have that same, like, well to draw from. So the the subject matter became, I guess, more accessible and less confrontational, and that probably made it more appealing to both record labels and to radio programmers, because you don't have to worry about people screaming about Reagan and politics and... That sort of stuff anymore. Is it, is, I, am I off base on that, or does that seem reasonable? I would say that you're on base, but there is one thing that punk bands, pop punk bands, were super, super aware of all throughout the 90s, and that was selling out. In, in the sense of, this is the most extreme example I can think of, but Jawbreaker, a band that was not necessarily straight up pop punk, but mm-hmm. definitely influenced by art rock as well. Generation, we're killing 
They said for years we'd never sign to a major label because it's all happening on the indies. And I think now, in retrospect, I think they were being a little tongue-in-cheek about it. The band was actually in the process of breaking up when all these major labels approached them about signing. They ended up signing with DGC, and they put out this very glossy record. It's still one of their best records, in my opinion. But at the time, so many people hated it. And there was such a divide in the punk underground i'm using air quotes around it and to give you a little bit of a, a backstory on the punk underground so much of the punk underground was dictated by what maximum rock and roll talked about maximum rock and roll i be, i don't remember exactly when they started but they were a very prevalent thing throughout the 80s and 90s but i it, at some point in the early 90s the guy behind it said that if we don't think you are punk to our standards we're not going to cover you if you're on a major label, there's no way that you're going to get any discussion. You're, getting, you're not going to get any coverage. You're not going to get any reviews. And so that kind of divide about what is punk and what isn't punk, that created a ton of fanzines and a couple of them that I think still hold up incredibly well. Punk Planet. Yes, I did write for Punk Planet later, but Punk Planet started way before I, I, I wrote for them. Dan Sinker did a wonderful thing starting in 1994. And he was then known as uh, Norm Arenas. Uh, he's now known as Norman Brannan, who's in Texas as the reason. He had a great zine called Antimatter. And so anyway, the point is, is that th this idea of becoming like the normal people was terrifying to the people that, that just resisted it. And, and the thing is, is like, I think of that great Lester Bangs quote. It's all like, you know, don't worry about the people the people that are making fun of you for liking music, you'll meet them again when you reach the middle. I mean, that's that's where we are in our lives now. But, hey, I'm not complaining. But at the time in the 90s, it was such a <laughs> steep divide of, like, are you a sellout? Why would you sign to a major label? But the thing was is that there, was some, there were a lot of bands that didn't care what label that they were on. Frankly, a lot of indie bands got screwed by indie labels. And right. They wanted to go with a label that where it was very clear, okay, we need you to sell this amount of records. If not, we're going to have to drop you. Instead of like, hey, we're this cool indie rock band and we like this cool indie rock label and you haven't paid us royalties uh, since 1994. I mean, they, they still exist, unfortunately. But, but then there are great labels at the uh, aforementioned Fat Records, Epitaph Records, um, Jeez, there's so many. Lookout was a huge, huge label. They put out the early um, Operation Ivy, Screeching Weasel, very important pop punk bands. But again, there was definitely a shift away from like you didn't hear a lot about politics. I'm, but it was not significantly less than what it was in the '80s. But in the 90s, it was just a different time. I mean, things were looking a lot more upbeat, especially with the economy. So that's, that's my take on it. I mean, really, it was Bad Religion was the only band that was sort of carrying that flag. There weren't a lot, yeah. of, mainstream, there weren't a lot of mainstream bands that were very overly political. They might have been in the zines when they're talking to you know, reporters. 
but their music strictly wasn't. But there was plenty of political punk rock during that time period, and there still is. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Propagandi was a great, another great example of how very, very political, and they played like metal-influenced pop punk, and very super technical, and, and it's great. I have a theory I'd be interested to hear you guys' thoughts on is that, you know, when punk first appeared in the late 70s, it sort of became a a little bit of a cultural phenomenon, but none of those bands really went mainstream. I mean, I guess if you're going to say the Sex Pistols were the most uh, successful, that, you know, all things considered, that's not that successful in terms of, you know, real mainstream, you know, impact. It, it kind of got quickly broken up into new wave of British heavy metal and new wave and all of these other things that became a lot more, I guess, familiar and easy for people to kind of digest and really, you know, take off. But in a way it was kind of a good thing because it let punk stay underground to a certain degree. And Mm -hmm. I think kind of develop the scene that you're talking about slowly and organically over the course of the entire decade of the eighties. So by the time the nineties came, you know, Nirvana kind of kicked the door open and started and them and lots of other bands that were influenced at this point by all of this underground music from a, you know, a decade's worth of, of bands and labels that the mainstream had never heard of. You know, they, they all kind of kicked the door open and, mm-hmm. you know, put those influences out there. And it was sort of a perfect storm, I think, in terms of, you know, uh, Kurt Cobain, you know, killing himself and the whole thing kind of, I think the music business trying to find, figure out where to go next and grunge quickly becoming, you know, passe. I think a lot of those bands, as they evolved and spawned new bands, they were, they refined themselves. You know, they, they, yeah. they kept getting more and more essentially uh, commercial in some ways, or at least accessible. And yeah. by the time that there was a void there, um, there was a lot of bands that had figured out how to take the energy of punk rock and make it something um, that people could, in the, in the mainstream, could understand and, and, and accept. And it all kind of converged at the right time. And um, I think they played the role of the second half of the decade of, you know, people want to have fun with rock and roll. Yeah. And yeah. Um, the 80s was, you know, mostly all about that, right? And or the mm-hmm. first half of the 90s wasn't, a lot of those bands were not very fun. <laughs> you know, even it was though. super that, serious, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's like yeah. you had no room to be, like, really jokey. I mean, like, this is in the ballpark but i remember hearing gwen stefani say that the reason why the first no doubt record just fell on flat e- uh, deaf ears was that at the time the industry was like super serious and yeah. here they were this bouncy ska pop band and it's mm-hmm. like there there was no chance for them right i mean even though a band like nirvana had a kind of a wicked sense of humor behind the scenes um obviously dave grohl and even uh, kirk Cobain. i mean all those guys they didn't present themselves that way. You know, they were sort of presented as being very sort of, you know, heavy, contemplative, you know, dark. And, and you know, five yeah. years of that was like, okay, I just, you know, teenagers just want to party. And, yeah, it um, was, it was definitely something that writers, people that worked for uh, labels, they wanted something serious because throughout the 80s, what was on the radio to their ears was not serious. I mean, hair metal, it's just pop songs with guitar solos. Virtuous, mm-hmm. virtuous, virtuostic. 
solos, you know, and, and so like it was it was that kind of seriousness to it. But the thing about early Green Day, I'm talking the the first few stuff that they put out on Lookout Records, you could tell right away they were way more poppy than the average underground punk band. That it was destiny that they would attract a large audience, get on a major label, and become one of the biggest bands in the world. And they had that drive, but I. But at the time, I thought they were like doing a lot of mocking of rock star attitudes. Like when they played Woodstock '94, they they did "We're Not Gonna Take It" by Twisted mm -hmm. Sister. In the mud oh, that's fight, right. the mud yeah. fight. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah and uh, it, but but I, I think I watched uh, their behind the music a number of years ago, and Trey Cool said straight face. It's like we thought we were the biggest rock band in the world, and that was a very unpunk kind of attitude. It's it's very much that punk rock guilt. I think that we're now understanding as we've gotten older is like you should just do what you want to. Don't worry about what other people are saying. But it's such a big deal of how you identify yourself. If you identify yourself as a punk fan, that means you do not conform to to life, to, to society's rules. But you can't live on the fringes of life. You can't be so anti everything where you're you're just pushed into a corner and you can't do anything it's it's very much it attracts the 15 year old in all of us the thing is is that when we reach our 20s and 30s life happens we yeah. want to we want to get married we want to buy a house it's not this terrible thing of falling into this trap of conformity it's what we want to do because we find the right people that we connect with and in you know now i listen to pop punk and it's it's just enjoyable pop music and and that's what i thought of it at the time it's just it has that kind of aggression to it that also makes it a lot of fun mm -hmm. I, I think what's funny is that you know the the issues that people had with green day um you know wanting to be the biggest band and having that super poppy sound um and going back and reading about the ramones like they never had this well, we need to keep it at a do-it-yourself level. Like they wanted to work with Phil Spector. They admired the big corporate—not corporate, but the big sound of 1960s girl groups and what Phil Spector was doing. And they wanted like that access to be able to do that gigantic sound, that wall of you know wall of sound that he was doing. And they wanted to be on a major like they saw that as the way out. They were you know living in crappy New York City, 1974. And they didn't ascribe to that sort of, well, we have to keep it, you know, uh, stay off a major label because yeah. there was no there was no independent label to be on for them. 
at that point. There was only one way to get it done. Right. It didn't really exist. Oh, I'll just kind of interject one other thing. And this was something that obviously flew over people my age's heads at the time. But the thing was is that the some of the biggest influential bands from the original wave of punk rock, they were all on major labels. And in the case of the Sex Pistols and the Clash, they had managers that were no different than the ones that created Menudo, the Backstreet Boys, and the... and. Uh, Whoa, I'm blank. Uh, New Kids on the Block. They were all puppets of managers that saw something happening with the youth that they would buy into. And so the thing is, is that all these all these guys my age, like towards the late 90s, we get into the all these discussions on email discussion lists of like what's punk and what it was and blah, blah, blah. And I just look back and I was like, guys, we were just sold a really good story that The Clash were the only band that mattered. But they also had Bernie Rhodes, who is a notorious manager that was no, I mean, he was, he was, he used to work with Malcolm McLaren behind the Sex Pistols. I mean, it's like we were duped, but hey, we got a lot of great music out of it. Right. And I, and I remember the clash as a kid. Like, I'm old enough to, that I can say, I can remember like Rock the Casbah and Should I Stay or Should I Go being on, you know, there wasn't an alternative radio station. It was just, pop radio in the early 80s when I was in and then and then the early MTV rotation I remember that rock the Casbah video on constantly on MTV and that was really like I think one of the few mainstream exposures to punk rock in America was probably the rock the Casbah or you know a clash video yeah and then that's go ahead well, I was just going to say, but to my point about uh, Sex Pistols, yeah, I mean, The Clash, I guess, in America, at least, was probably the biggest breakthrough. But, you know, Combat Rock is pretty, it's a way more accessible record than right. you know, anything before it. So even by then, it would have been like if, uh, you know, Green Day's American Idiot was the first record that really broke through for Green Day. You know, it's sort of right. they had gotten yeah. to the point where they become a little bit more of an accessible band and less, quote unquote, punk rock, or at least less raw. No, what I was going to say there about the Clash, you know, those kids who, you know, I was one of those kids and was in 84 when that came out, 82, 84. Yeah. yeah, something like that. But, you know, I was probably eight or somewhere between eight and 10 at the time. And, you know, getting that, that combat rock tape and then you get to uh, straight to hell <laughs> and you were like, whoa, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> this is way over my head. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, uh, and I'll, I'll I'll just say this. What was weird was that when Rancid broke through, there were a lot of people older than me that were like, man, this is the Clash. They're just ripping them off. And I was like, wait a sec. Ruby Soho doesn't sound like Rock the Casbah. And then in college, I finally heard the first couple of Clash records, and I'm like, oh, now I get it. But <laughs> hey, hey, I still think And Out Come the Wolves is an amazing record. I'm glad you brought them up because I want to talk about uh, Riot Girl came up a little bit earlier, but there were a lot of subdivisions of of punk rock in the '90s. You had your ska big punk, time. you had you know with Rancid and Real Big Fish and Boss Tones and uh, No Doubt, and then you had like you mentioned the Riot Girl uh, punk rock with Bikini Kill and uh, L7. Is L7 punk rock or are they metal? I don't. Where do they fall? Or a grunge it's, band, in my opinion. Or a grunge yeah, band. I'd okay. say grunge. You know, a lot of that is all. I mean, a lot of it all has basis in punk rock anyway. I mean, I yeah. I, I would consider Nirvana a punk band. I mean, they really had an attitude that 
I mean, you know, you can say like punk. I mean, I could I can name like five bands right now, and I would consider them all punk, and none of them sound anything alike. Right. And I think that's very common. And as we're talking about these these subgenres, that and that is a very common thought. Um, I had never. Th- I always thought of like bands like the um, um, Bays in Toyland, L Seven, um, to fit into that um, Riot Girl type genre. Yeah, and you know we can't forget all the post-hardcore and emo bands. Yeah, it's not like I wrote a book about it or anything. But no, I mean, <laughs> but that all came out of the splintering of it. I I remember being very into pop punk, but not really having any interest in wanting to talk about the politics of what a band is, what do they stand for, what label are they on, and what really drew me to emo was that. This is a much more harder example, but like the straight edge stuff, I identified with not wanting to, you know, get drunk and get high and be promiscuous. That didn't that didn't interest me. So for a brief while, I considered myself a straight edge guy. But then when I saw the extremity of straight edge, where it was wearing bandanas and, you know, listening to music that essentially didn't sound all that far removed from Pantera. But and like you couldn't understand what any of the lyrics were. It was all shouted and rah, rah, rah. and so what drew me to emo was that it was just an expression of your inner feelings beyond what you ate, what you didn't eat, what you drank, and what you didn't drink. And so I mean, there are all sorts of different subgenres, subgenres that are still in effect in various degrees to this day. Yeah, I think it it actually kind of uh, at the end of the decade started to roll into garage, and yeah, th- that's more of where I like ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine is when I, I guess quote unquote punk bands is when I started identifying it with it more as it got a little bit more um, either blues garage oriented or even. Mm-hmm started picking up some classic rock elements but still had the energy so like action rock stuff from you know the scandinavian countries or detroit or some of those places that were you know picking it up and taking it in a new direction so it that was even another fracture that that existed of punk rock well then of course you have things like you know you mentioned like hard post hardcore and then hardcore bands um you know pop punk is its own sort of I guess sub genre of punk. Um, mm-hmm. You have stuff then like queer core. That's a whole nother genre yeah. with um, like Pansy Division. Um, and certain, you know, certain genres did better based on their accessibility, I guess, to the to the mainstream. Um, it seems like pop punk was the one that did the best, probably because of the pop aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then ska, I guess, would be the ska core would or ska punk would probably be, I guess, number two in terms of like, you know, I don't think anybody was expecting a, a ska revival in the '90s, but somehow that happened. It seemed, and that seemed to pair well, um, because it's dance oriented. I guess it see, I guess that paired well with the revival in like the swing uh, that happened with, uh, <laughs> you know, your Squirrel Nut Zippers and Brian Setzer Orchestra and Did Cherry that, Pop and Daddies. So, I guess in theory, you're saying that you know that's that brought women into the the punk rock shows. Is that the idea? I mean, did that it's, really happen though? Well, I think I think Is that it, who was buying those records. I don't know if women were buying the records, but I think it made 
I think there was some crossover between a lot of different genres of punk and some stuff that wasn't punk. And that I th- and I think that had to do with maybe the more women going out to shows that where hardcore to be like a hundred percent guy sweaty shirtless guys banging into right. each other. Yeah. Um, whereas maybe it was only ninety five percent at like a Scott Punk show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and probably like <laughs> seventy or sixty percent at a pop punk show. Yeah. Because um it it became a much more in- inclusive audience. Um as opposed to, you know, what was probably a much more exclusive audience in the 80s for a lot of those bands. Um, (laughs) But it seemed, you know, in the same way that, like, Weezer's Pinkerton gets credited for um, being involved in the emo movement, in the same way that, like, Sunny Day Real Estate Diary does as well, but they're not necessarily bands that are instantly identifiable when you listen to those bands, you know, the the emo bands. They don't... You know, I think there's probably some crossover to some other genres that aren't necessarily punk, but are a, like a stepbrother or stepsister away from it. Yeah, a lot of that, is especially with Diary and Pinkerton, that was done retroactively. I mean... Uh, so for those of you who are wondering what just happened, uh, Skype just completely collapsed on all of us, like a, uh, a poorly built Jenga tower. So we are back, and unfortunately, uh, Eric Grubbs, who was in the middle of a, a very um, thoughtful commentary on something, um, his Skype has refused to restart completely, so he has, has to re- he's had to rejoin us on his telephone we're going back. Yeah. Uh, Texas broadband can only support one of us. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Eric. <laughs> yeah. So hope I hope I'm coming in okay. We got you. You are you're, good. Yeah. Yeah, you're good. Okay. Okay. Uh, um. So I don't remember where the hell we were. That was like a half hour ago. It, in in podcast well, time, it happened like thirty seconds ago, but in right. real, real time, it happened like a half hour ago. Do you remember what you were talking about? Well, basically, I, I was I was explaining that what drew me to other different subgenres of punk was that in in the sense of like I for a brief little time identified myself as straight edge, but then when I realized what being straight edge was was meant that you were you were really uh, how would I put it in your face with people about what you drank, what you didn't drink, what you ate, what you didn't eat, who you stood for. And I just didn't care about that. I was much more into expressing inner emotions and connecting with other people. I didn't care if people drank or smoked. I I just was more into the music. And frankly, that's what I've always been. And that's why I consider myself a music enthusiast beyond anything else. I hear you. I, I could never get behind the straight edge movement just because it was, you know, for a, for a genre or for a, a, you know, punk rock is supposed to be about anti authority, anti authoritarian. I can't say the word anti authority. authoritarian. Yeah. yeah, there you go. And, you know, in some ways straight edge just applies its own set of authoritarian rules to govern the ideology. So I just, that was just something that I was, really uncomfortable with when i learned about it probably not yeah. 
was seriously considering it. Like I didn't consider, seriously consider becoming a goth when I heard about goth music, but you know, mm-hmm. that, that came up in the, uh, the Steven Brodsky interview we did yeah, uh, from cave in. Right. And he was talking about paraphrasing obviously, but he was, he liked the community of hardcore and, you know, some of the straight edge stuff, but didn't, I think for him, it, at the end of the day, he didn't love the music that much. Like, he liked other stuff, too. Right, right. And right. Uh, he liked melody, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah, and, and something that I didn't really understand at the time, but it made a whole lot of more sense the years moving on beyond the 90s, was that there were these groups of people that felt like they didn't belong in society. So they create their own subculture. Yet then they start acting like assholes when they were turned off by assholes of other <laughs> aspects of society. Right. That explains so much about really the Gilman Street's uh, sound, where Green Day came from. Was that Green Day was banned from playing Gilman Street for many, many years because they crossed this line that you apparently could never cross back into. And you realize that the people that were saying those kinds of things, a lot of them were just trying to find their way in life. And they just didn't want to fall into the easy traps of conformity. So, you know, hey, time does interesting things to us. But at the time, it was like, no, we're not going to become those people. (laughs) Right. Well, I'll say one thing about Gilman, you know, they find it very beneficial every five or six years when Green Day actually shows up there and does a little benefit for them to help them keep their doors open. So um, (laughs) they always appreciate that. And on to the straight edge thing, because I am clearly not straight edge at all. (laughs) Um, I loved the straight edge movement. I loved it. I loved Minor Threat. I loved, you know, the 90s explosion of straight edge bands were amazing. The Earth Crisis was a band. I swear to God, I was in a I was in a college classroom one afternoon, and I'm sitting there and trying to pay attention to this professor. It's probably a political science class of some sort, and a buddy of mine is sitting outside the door of the classroom, you know, looking at me, waving at me, waving at me, and I I finally just got up and went up to the professor. I'm like, listen, I'm sorry, I gotta go. I think there's something going on. You know, I was in charge of the newspaper at the time. I'm like, I think there must be an issue at the newspaper. One of my writers is flagging me down. And I walk out in the hallway. I'm like, what the hell do you need? He's like, you need to hear this song right now. I'm like, I'm in the middle of a class. <laughs> in the middle. He's like, no. So here we are walking back to my dorm room so he could play me Earth Crisis's Firestorm Forge and Flame 7 
swear to God, we listened to it 10 times in a row and just were blown away by just the intensity of that song. And that was like when hardcore really, really hit me. It wasn't Black Flag. I loved Black Flag. I loved Minor Threat. When Earth Crisis came out, that was when I was like, wow, I am all about this. Yeah. So let me ask you guys then, um, that's a great segue into, are there bands that you heard from this era, whether it was an Earth Crisis or or someone else, um, that you heard them and thought, holy shit, this is amazing, everybody needs to hear this, and were stupefied that they didn't, not necessarily catch on in the mainstream, but that more people didn't appreciate a particular band or a particular album that was released in the 90s. And Scott, I'll start with you since you just mentioned Earth Crisis. Um, man, the one that I really, you know, I, I think of them more as an emo band, actually, was Promise Ring. Um, hmm. The first time I heard Promise Ring, I was blown away. I, I saw them live. I didn't even hear them on CD. I was at a show. Buddy of mine said, you got to check this band out. And I played it for a bunch of people, and they were like, it, it got no reaction whatsoever. And I was just stupefied by that. Um, another band that I can think of, you know, the funny thing is I always loved um, Down By Law. Great band. Um, another epitaph band. And apparently the reason why none of my punk friends liked them was because the singer Dave Smalley just happens to be a Republican. So, oh, good goodness, we can't like him. And huh. you know, some of the best punk rock around. I mean, that band, great melodic punk rock. And I was I was always surprised that they never got big. Huh, interesting. That there was a Republican in a punk band. I did not know that. Actually, uh, he's a libertarian. That's heard, I heard that yeah. directly from Dave Smalley's lips. Yeah. <laughs> but at the time, he might have been just considered a Republican. Yeah, he was considered. He now identifies himself as a libertarian. Well, he was a part of conservative punk for a while, the, um, the website. Yeah. So that's yeah. where people get that. As was one of the oh, guys yeah. from the Misfits, right? Uh, yeah, Michael Graves, the uh, the, sing- the former singer um, who replaced Quinn Danzig in the mid-90s. <laughs> Not a small feat. Uh, <laughs> um, but as, as far as uh, Tim's answer your question... Uh, Face to Face is one of my all-time favorite bands. Not just punk bands, but bands. And they have all—they always sold really well. I mean, the first record was first put out on Doctor Strange and is reissued on Fat Records. And it's a classic, and it's deservedly so. And uh, they were a band that they still resonate with me. They—they they, the way that Trevor Keith writes his lyrics are in a way that if you're a teenager, you can relate to what he's saying. If you're in your 20s and you're just like starting to find yourself as an adult, you can relate to those lyrics. And you can be like my age, which is 36, and still there are times where I'm like, what am I doing with my life? And I can go see Face to Face play their first three records over a three-night stand in North Dallas, and it mean as much as it does to me now than it when it did when I saw them the first time. And, oh, I should also mention, I've seen Face to Face a total of nine times. <laughs> so, well, um, Face to Face is one of those bands. Face to Face is the only band I've seen nine times at the National Touring Act. Uh, other bands, Screeching Weasel, uh, My Brain Hurts, Boogada Boogada Boogada, uh, all really incredible stuff. Anthem for a New Tomorrow. Uh, they, they put out a ton of stuff. And, 
can't stress this enough is that there were so many Midwestern bands, just bands that probably never would have played punk rock, uh, came out of just the explosion of, of pop punk, the punk attitude. So there are lots of really cool bands. And then, uh, but then there are bands that had a style that wasn't really punk rock at all, but they were very much influenced by, by the vibe of it. And that is, there's a band called Friction that came from the suburbs of Chicago. Well, the drummer of Friction, his name was Bob Nana, and he went off to college and he formed a, brand, a band called Braid, a band that is still kicking around and I actually just drove 10 hours to Nashville to go see, spend time with. So, and, and, but, you know, Braid never became really huge, and but the music has always resonated with me. I mean, there's just a lot of bands I could mention but those are the, some of the ones that come off the top of my head. Is it you started to mention uh, you got a little bit into um, you know regions? Is it mm-hmm. safe to say that really the West Coast are the bands that that exploded in the, in the late '90s, in the mid '90s? I'm trying to think of some of the other bigger pop punk bands that really broke through. And I'm, it seems like well, most of them are all California, right? Yeah, a lot of California. I mean, what helped was that Epitaph and Fat Records were turning out stuff that was selling really well. I mean, the way that Epitaph was structured back then was that if you had a band that sold like 30,000 copies, that was amazing for Epitaph, and that was a big seller. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas on a major label, you know, you get dropped easily. But um, with The Offspring... They would bring out bands that they liked. You know, Brian Dexter Holland had Nitro Records that he originally put out the first couple of Offspring records on. And then he started putting out his own bands. Uh, One of the bands that really broke through that I know that you guys must absolutely love and listen to every single day is AFI. Mm. Yes. 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 AFI started out as a full-on Misfit-style hardcore punk band. And I don't begrudge them for wanting to expand beyond what they were playing. But by the time that they signed with, uh, I think, DreamWorks at first, and then it became like Geffen and MCA or whatever. But they wanted to be much more. Like they were wanting to be more like their idea of the cure. And the sorrow is tremendous. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, who can forget Miss Murder? I mean, it's it's a super catchy song. But... Uh, by the time they had put out that record, um, I think it's got gray in the title. I'm blanking on it to see how much of an impact it had on me. But their style of punk rock had already, they had just run as many circles as they could around it. And I think that's a big, important topic to, to just put out there is that in punk rock, if you tried to mature beyond what made you popular, you were hated and you would immediately go running back to the style of punk rock that was more familiar. Uh, unfortunately, that happened with Face to Face. Face to Face had put out three stellar pop punk classics. And then the band actually broke up for a little while. They were just very much in a spot where it's like, what do you do more? Well, they decided to put out a much darker record that was more influenced by The Cure and The Foo Fighters. I personally loved it, but I remember seeing them play at Liberty Lunch, and there were a number of people that were very disappointed in this change in direction. Uh, about a year and a half later, 
Face to Face put out another record that was much more in the vein of their past pop punk stuff, and it's called The Reactionary. And I mean, that, that's just how punk rock is so limiting. But, you know, when you're at the whims and hopes and dreams of people that hope that they never fall into the trap of conformity, that's what they want to hear. It's, it can be very predictable. And that's, that's just an unfortunate outcome about punk rock in general. And I especially saw it in the 90s. Did, uh, d- did Bad Religion go through that? I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with that band. Um, they've always seemed they went fairly commercial to me. A couple of times. Um, they have a record that is still out of print, but I know that you can easily find it, that they put out in the mid-'80s called Into the Unknown. Which, was, which showcased much more of the band, especially Greg Grappin's influences. He really likes utopia and prog rock. And it's, it was much different than How Could Hell Be Any Word. And while the band broke up, I, I think all the copies that they shipped were returned. <laughs> and once again, it's out of print. Um, and there was a point in the in the late 90s, after Brett Gurowitz had left the band and he would later return to the band, but the band's records that they put out, like No Substance, uh, Gray Race, without Brett Gurowitz, they kept the band active, but there's a reason why they don't play a lot of stuff from that era, because when Brett Gurowitz reappeared, and suddenly it's like the songwriting team of Brett Gurowitz and Greg Grafton is back, and and I mean, I remember interviewing Dave Von Bolin from The Promise Ring that, yes, The Promise Ring opened for Bad Religion on a string of dates, and it was terrible. <laughs> and Davey said, I don't want to be in my you know later adult years playing music that just made 15-year-olds jump up and down. There are 15-year-olds in every city, and I just don't want to present music like a lazy boy chair and i was like okay that makes sense but you know bad religion is very much accepted that people want to hear the fast stuff and that's it (laughs) yeah Hmm. well i think i mean it was my understanding that brett left the band for that time period um because the band had signed to a major label Mm -hmm. am i not correct there oh no you're you're absolutely right i I mean i I thought that's why he left and he was still a part of the band in some way, but it was always kind of a fuzzy grayer. But I knew he wasn't touring. And that's when they brought like Brian right. Baker into the band. Um, there was creative tension. And plus, Epitaph was blowing up that it just made better sense for Brett to step away from the band for a number of years. That's when Brian Baker from Minor Threat, Dag Nasty, uh, came Dunk in Dark. and and you know kept the band going let me ask you guys this because this is a band that i feel like in terms of would have liked to have heard them getting bigger but i want to confirm that they're i have them pinned right is rocket from the crip a punk band yes yes in a way yes okay they were they were much more than but then just the simple classification as punk, but the punk attitude, definitely there. I mean, here was a band that had horns, but they weren't a ska band. They were, they, mm-hmm. they liked to, they liked to sound like the best kind of Halloween party. And I mean, that as a compliment. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, That's Scream, it. Dracula, Scream. Right. You know, those are those are still considered great, great albums. Yeah, that run of Scream, Dracula, Scream, RFTC, and Group Sounds are probably my three favorite for the band. I know yeah. that's those those last two are a little more polished than the first couple records, and some people don't like them. But I think in terms of the songwriting and the energy of those records, it's just uh, it's unbeatable. And I, I, that's a band that I would have loved to have seen get a little more success because I think they might still be around. Yeah. Well, they were, they were again another band that I think in a way, in terms of music history, they influenced a lot of other bands. Like, they created the mm-hmm. whole... Uh, the Hives. I mean, The Hives exist probably because of the record from the Crypt. A lot of the Scandinavian bands that I mentioned were mm-hmm. you know, heavily inspired from record from the Crypt and uh, New Bomb Turks as well. Right. So, yeah. Turbo you know, Negro. Turbo yeah. Negro. <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> I, I got to see Rocket from the Crypt uh, in D.C. when I moved there, you know, 15 years ago. And I tell you, every punk I knew in town was at that show. So, Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the punks make it so. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're actually not too far off from our, our stated goal of an hour. So um, we didn't even get to cover uh, a lot of the stuff I, or I, some of the stuff I, I mentioned when we're uh, when we're making the time capsule for the uh, the 1990s, and we have to put the songs in the, the punk section, if I asked you guys to pick one song that uh, for you sort of summed up the sound of punk rock in the 1990s, do you think you can give me a track, Eric? Oh, jeez. Um, off the top of my head, it's gonna be. Oh man! Just one song, really? <laughs> one song, just one song. I'm gonna go with "Veronica Hates Me" by uh, Screeching Weasel. Okay, that's a good pick, <laughs> Mr. Colvin. What is what do you say? <laughs> this is hard because I have not uttered the words "Fugazi" the entire night, and that is still one of my favorite punk bands of the era. Fugazi, Fugazi, Fugazi. But I have to say, I would go with <laughs> Roots Radicals by Ransom. I just love that song. Every time I hear it, I, I, I jump out of my seat and dance around like an idiot, and I'm 41 years old. So There you go. Uh, Jason? Uh, so the question is, what best represents? You had to pick. There's, they're, they're launching a time capsule into space. Yeah. Do you want the Do you want the aliens to hear punk rock in the 1990s? Yeah. What, what, are, what are the aliens going to hear? I, I think I'm going to pick Long You by Green Day. To me, that's what started the whole thing. It was sort of modeled around essentially what's all in that song. So Interesting. 
because it's not when you think of Longview, it's not um, in terms of punk, which a lot of people ascribe with fast. Uh, it it eschews the sort of or eschews the whatever that word is, the sort of what you would think is yes, the what the traditional sort of like Welcome to Paradise or uh, yeah, some of some other. uh, But to me, it has the, the the accessibility parts that a lot of the bands, you know, the the reason why so, so many of these bands became well known is because in some way or another, you know, it's got that heavy downstrom, right? It's got the energy, mm-hmm. but it's just pulled off enough and it's got enough of a groove that it suddenly becomes, you know, something that you can play on the radio a lot and um yeah, I mean it's not the fastest I put on Sorry, Dave. Go ahead. I put on Duke. I put on Dookie last night for the first time in about 10, 15 years, and I was getting the big old stupid grin on my face after every song. Um, <laughs> that record just holds up so well. And I don't care if you're so sick of hearing Basket Case or When I Come Around. It doesn't matter. It's such a great record that, you know, I can't, I can't fault it for anything. Yeah. I really can't. I, I, I agree. Okay. I would go with... Um... Man, this is tough because you know I was I was on board with Green Day and Rancid and those sorts of bands. I didn't come around to Bad Religion until I was a little bit older. They were a little headier when it came right down to it in terms of the lyrics and stuff like that. And I don't think I was in that mindset. Um, so if I was gonna pick a, I guess a, a, a Bad Religion song because that'd probably be my pick. Um, and then I gotta go with something off of um stranger than fiction do i go with the singles or do i do i pick like infected or 21st century digital boy or those are singles those are the singles or do i or do i go with something deeper cut that's a tough one i guess i'll go with uh infected as the uh that seems like the a good like encompassing everything that I needed to encompass. They, they had a great line in that. They had a great line in that album, though. Like one of the, you know, the, the callback choruses. You know, the, the I mean, Bad Religion were awesome with the harmonies, but there was one in that album, I believe. I believe it was that album. It might have been the one before it. But the background chorus was "Great Dichotomy." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and really, <laughs> like the the thesaurus that Greg Gaffin had, man, was amazing because. Mm-hmm. And the, the great thing about that band, which really took me a long time to get, was the harmonies that they're doing in all the songs, and the vocals are so good on, on, in that band. Um, if I was choosing a B-side, I think I'd choose Boxcar by Jawbreaker, just for so that you could ask, who's punk, what's the score, and uh, then we can yeah. wrap it up on yeah, that. that. That's what I was talking about earlier, is this whole mm-hmm. thing of, like, you know, where do you stand? And it's like... Yeah. Why the fuck should that matter? <laughs> exactly. But, but I was, you know, I was just kind of a silent observer. I was around all these people, especially online. Yeah, I understand that, you know, with the internet, things really did change things with punk rock. Um, and then with Blink-182, they were much more of a pop band playing punks in a, in a punk style. Right. And uh, I, I mean... I love the first couple of Blink-182 records. Cheshire Cat, uh, Dude Ranch, and especially uh, Enema of the State. All really, really good stuff that holds up well. But as far as like the influence on punk rock in, in the, the 2000, you know, in the aughts and in the 2010s, 
it's still very much there and all the all the divisions and subdivisions well a lot of that happened in the 90s you brought up blink 22 that was going to be my uh my answer for biggest surprise success i i guess i don't get uh with that band especially going back and listening to it to me it sounds like um what emo would give you <laughs> but not quite as uh i don't know committed it's like emo but goofy <laughs> if that makes sense so yeah. he's got like yeah. the whiny the whiny vocal um you know the nasally kind of vocal that you hear sometimes, and you know you stereotypically with with emo. But then, I, I just that's just a band. I guess at the time when I first heard them, I never would have thought in a million years they would have been as successful as they were. Um, I I, just, I don't quite get it. Yeah, yeah, I've never gotten that band. Uh, they, I'll be honest. And they're huge. Yep, still are. Yeah, still are, despite themselves. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Doesn't like the one guy like believe in aliens and like they can't get him to. Oh, he's already left. Them. Oh, yeah. They got oh, yeah. um... Tom DeLonge. Yeah. Tom right. DeLonge. Uh, this isn't the first time Tom DeLonge has said like some really, you know, headline grabbing stuff. After Blink 182 first broke up, he was going, he was making some very bold declarations about his uh, Angels and Airwaves project. And it was like, it's going to revolutionize music and all these great things. And the thing is, as much as I think the Angels and Airways stuff is great, he was trying to sound like The Cure meets U2, Joshua Tree era meets Pink Floyd, but it winds up sounding more like Flock of Seagulls. And I like Flock of Seagulls, but as far as grand ambition, it's, it's <laughs> I, I just don't hear it. And um, I mean, it, yeah, but it, that's that's just kind of a weird mystery to me. And but you know, you think about well, what's the appeal of Blink One Eighty Two? And I mean, it's something that guys can get into and girls can go crazy for. Yeah. And I mean, the music. I mean, that Frank Zappa quote of the music industry as a fifteen-year-old girl definitely applies. <laughs> yeah. That's all. Anyway. <clears throat> well, yeah, ending, ending the note on Frank Zappa. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no one more punk than Frank. We should wrap up here. We only scratched the surface, really. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that our commenters will help fill in some gaps and help expand on our conversation in our comments on Facebook, Twitter, and at digmeoutpodcast.com, of course. We need to thank our guests for this evening. Um, down in Dallas, Texas, Mr. Eric Grubbs, um, who you can me. find all over the interwebs uh, doing all sorts of fun things. And in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, home of the Naval Academy. Naval Academy, that's what I was trying to think of. And uh, <laughs> the, the basis for the James Franco movie, Annapolis, uh, Mr. Scott <laughs> Colvin. And the guys from Good Charlotte used to hang out here all the time. There you go. Oh, no beta. They they nope. used to pick up chicks at the pizza place, from what I understand. <laughs> so. I'm sure that is now a legendary pizza place where people visit and pay homage to Good Charlotte's uh, um, ability to pull ladies. Uh, so, <laughs> is there a pizza there named after them? Um, I actually don't know. I, it's been closed for a little bit, but when I bought my house here 15 year, or 14 years ago. 
our real estate agent pointed out the pizza place and she's like, yeah, my daughter used to hang out there when she was in high school and, and the guys from Good Charlotte would come out there and try to pick up high school chicks. So <laughs> You're like <Excellent>. sold. <laughs> what do they want for this house? Offer them 10,000 more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I want to remind everybody, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. And of course, if you have an album you would like us to check out, head on over to our request review page and uh, hit us up with your requested review. That's it for Jam Tim. We're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Yeah.